Welcome to Saltivation. The Saltivation Show is a podcast series featuring the leading voices in salt, where we talk about the issues and strategies to help you make sense of state and local tax. Well, thank you, Olga, so much for being here. It's great to have you and talk to you about, you know, state tax. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to do it. So what initially attracted you to the field of law and then what kind of took you into kind of the state and local tax space within that? So so I thought about this question and I thought I would sort of tell a story if you will indulge me. Um, Always. Great. So I started thinking about the, the field of law part and I think that there are a lot of people who become lawyers who grow up, they know they want to be a lawyer. Like maybe they have lawyers in their family or in, you know, they grow up around lawyers, but that, that was not me. Um, I did not know a single lawyer. And like Alex, my family immigrated from the former Soviet Union to the United States and my parents were engineers and they worked as computer programmers. They, you know, very, very science oriented. So their friends were also IT. Their friends were also sciencey people. So they didn't really quite know what to do with a kid who was not good at science and was really good at like writing and English and like interested in social science and, and all of that stuff. They, they couldn't really recommend a path for me. And so I kind of started and, and tried a bunch of different things before I landed in law. So I went to college and I majored in psychology because I was super interested in all of these fascinating social societal problems. And, you know, in psychology, you think of all of these fun questions and you hypothesize about their answers and you can, you know, dive into these experiments and and try to figure out what, what the actual answers to the questions are. But ultimately, um, didn't like psychology, felt unsatisfying because it didn't feel like real world problems. You know, I I did <laughs> I did a project my senior year where I tried to figure out whether um, I went to Washington University and I did a project my senior year where I tried to figure out whether like the mere exposure effect would mean that by going to school with all these people for the last four years, we would like all start finding each other more attractive. Than, than they actually are. Um, so that's nothing. That's not that's not a real problem. Well, well how big is Washington University? Um, I think that's it's about big. two to three thousand altogether. So, so what was the conclusion to your hypothesis? Because I went to a really small school too uh, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I think we had about three thousand undergraduate on campus, yeah. and and I thought about the same thing at that time. <laughs> And by the time that we were graduating uh, senior year, um, I felt fairly confident that that was true. Yeah. So, so here's what the science says: <laughs> is there was no significant, statistically significant result, but there was an interesting no. change in that the women actually lowered their standards over the course of time, whereas the men remained exactly the same. <laughs> so. So that's a yeah. um, My... societal <laughs> finding that 
my non-scientific findings were that there was definitely um, change. <laughs> <laughs> there was definitely some sort of correlation. <laughs> um, okay, so then, so then I thought, so uh, psychology is not for me. And after college, I I was like, okay. I did all this stuff that didn't involve any real world problem solving. Like I really want to do problem solving in the real world. So I went kind of all in on that. And I moved to the woods in New Hampshire and did a year long conservation core program through AmeriCorps. Um, so basically that year I was living in CCC camps and in like a tent outside and I was building trails and I was building yurts and I was using chainsaws in state parks. And so that was like the real problem solving thing that I wanted to experience. Um, but um, I can tell you that that hauling hand tools a mile uphill into the woods, um, that gets a little bit exhausting. So I thought, all right, that that probably isn't for me. And during that time, a friend who was in the program with me, he was planning to go to law school and he just left some of his LSAT prep books unattended. And I got so bored that I started flipping <laughs> through them. And I got really sucked into doing the logic puzzles. <laughs> so I kind of figured... All right, if I was like inexplicably having fun studying for law school, I should probably look into the laws as an option for my career. And that's sort of when I realized that, hey, that's that's exactly what law is. You're you're solving problems, it's in the real world, it's for real clients. And you know, the bonus is that you don't have to lift rocks or or dig trails and you know, I can kind of do that as a hobby on the weekend if I want to. You're like the granola version of Elle Woods. Just like one day I'll decide to go to law school. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know, like I made the video of myself um, right. wearing a lot of flannel. Exactly. <laughs> Hopping out of a tree and not a hot tub. I, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. I have like a chainsaw. So... These are are uh, legally blonde references to all all our listeners who are not um, not up on their nineties nineties two thousands pop culture. I think it's odd. No, but they should be. Whatever, whatever. Yeah, that that's a great question. I'm not sure. Mandatory viewing for all lawyers, I think. So that's a really long answer to your question of how how did I find the law? Um, you know, I, I want I liked problem solving a lot. I I wanted to be out in the world doing that and. And so I, so I went to law school and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I kind of thought I was going to do environmental law because I came from the woods. And I, I started kind of like taking this track towards tax as sort of like a backup. And I found out that I'm, you know, for whatever reason, I'm the weirdo whose brain is wired to really, really enjoy tax. Um, and And so I... I took a bunch of tax classes uh, in law school and then I went to NYU and got my LLM. Um, and so while I was up in New York, I, you know, was looking for a job and I had gone to law school in Austin, Texas. And my, my boyfriend, who's now my husband, he was living down in Texas. And so I knew I wanted to go down there for at least a few years to, to start practicing. And, I saw this job posting for a salt litigation boutique um, in Austin. And that just seemed like a really good fit because 
I really wanted to do a lot of research and writing and and, ho- and just like hone those skills. And I wanted kind of an individualized small firm setting where I knew I was going to get like the training and attention um, to become a better lawyer. So, so what I did at that point is I applied for this job and then I signed up for Professor Pomp's state and local tax class. And then I, and then like months later, I got the job. So luckily it, it all worked out. Um, (laughs) so I, so that's kind of how I landed in salt. And so I, I worked with, um, with Doug Siegel, who I think is one of the best litigators there is in, in our field. And, um, and, and it was great. Like I got thrown into the deep end. My, my very first assignment, I had to write the response to the Texas controller's motion for summary judgment in the AMC franchise tax case in Texas, where AMC was basically taking the position that it should get to subtract its cost of goods sold because it sold a product that was perceptible to the census. So... A really, I think, an interesting argument. You get thrown into the deep end of like interpreting statutory language, making plain language arguments to the court. Um, at that point, Texas courts were going all in on just, you know, read the text and apply the text, and and that was really great. And you know, I think it also helped that we won a bunch of cases in my first couple years of practice. So. <laughs> There's a lot of positive reinforcement. Yes. Yeah. yeah, no kidding. So then what what sort of legal issues are you working through kind of right now? What are you seeing show up if there's any repeat offenders um, either on the state side or, you know, kind of the argue things that you're arguing? Yeah. And so I think we're going to talk about remote employees and Wayfair maybe later on. So I won't talk about those now, but I do see... No, you can talk about them now. Sure. Whatever <laughs> um, you want, the world is your oyster. This podcast is your oyster. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> so so I think like a lot of practitioners, I, I've been seeing a lot of issues around um, remote employees um, and a lot of employers coming to us with those issues. I've actually been really lucky and I've, I have a really good relationship with our employment group because these questions go hand in hand with questions that they're answering about, okay, like what kind of policies are employers putting in place and, and workers comp and unemployment insurance, like all of those employment issues that I don't deal with as much. So we've been tag teaming remote worker issues. And I think the the concerns that we're seeing are are kind of twofold. Um, one, you know, unsurprisingly, one is nexus and the other is withholding. And so, so on the withholding side, I get a lot of questions along the lines of, you know, how long does an employee have to be working from a state for me to have to start withholding? And in Maine, we actually have a pretty sensible um, safe harbor where it's 12 days and $5,000 in wages. So if you have kind of like a more low level employee who's just wandering into the state, you're not going to have a withholding requirement. Um, but, you know, in a bunch of states, as we know, it's kind of the Wild West out there and states are all over the place. And, you know, a bunch of states say it's day one, you have to withhold. So I have a Any lot... Any income earned or what does that even mean if I'm... 
my earning income if I jump on a phone call for my parents' pool, right? Right, right. Yeah. Um, I think some states would say, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. No so I, you have these conversations where you're running up against like what is what the law seems to require versus what is practical for for the employer. And, you know, I think in a lot of cases, I, I tell them, you know, I think I can advise you on what the law requires and you can do what's right for your business. And, and you know, we all do our best. It's interesting. I think we see that a lot in, in, in state taxation, but specifically or or commonly in this area, right, where where it's um, you can try uh, as best as you can, but 100% compliance is almost impossible, especially if you have a large uh, spread out workforce. It's incredibly, incredibly challenging to stay compliant. So it's kind of like do the best you, you can. Right. And I think it, you know, on the business side and it, it comes down to just, you know, what is the risk analysis? You know, what is the likelihood that a state is going to come after you for somebody answering a phone call from their parents' pool? Have you, have you seen any enforcement uh, that you can talk about on this point? Because I, I you know, I, I think this is, this is a very hot topic and then legal issues are real. I, I, I'm not Sure, I've seen a lot of high-profile enforcement on it, though, from a withholding perspective against the employer, right? Because at the end of the day, the employer has that responsibility yeah. uh, to uh, uh, to withhold, but the tax is the employees, right? Um, and theoretically, you know, kind of painting in broad strokes here, at the end of the day, it should kind of equalize on the taxes, on the personal income tax side, right? If if everything is done properly on on that side, eventually. right? In the final. yeah, yeah, I agree with you, and um, I haven't seen enforcement, and it might just be that that there is enforcement, but but we don't see it because we generally yeah. don't see yeah. like the audit piece of of things. We see right. it when an employer or a company is is ready to appeal. So I'm not I'm not sure, but you know I think. A flip side of an employer trying to be as compliant as they can be is that you can end up with, you know, multiple withholding on the same income for employees. So like, just, you know, a very simple example that came up the other day is, you know, a, a client hired an employee in California. This, you know, he's a California resident. He's going to be working from California and but he's going to be spending half of his time working for Massachusetts. So they're like, wait, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to withhold also in Massachusetts? And you know, I, I think the answer is, yeah, you have to withhold on a hundred percent in California, and then you can withhold on fifty percent in Massachusetts. And then, you know, and then their concern was also like, okay, so his contract says, He's working half time from Massachusetts, but what if things change? You know, and and what do we do? You know, how do we keep track of where this this one person is? And this is you know, very small scale because, like you were saying, Alex, a lot bigger companies have to keep track of a whole lot more than the one employee. Well, but to your point, I think it can it can it can bloom very easily with a larger workforce, right? I, I think taking taking your example kind of to the next level. In your example, the employer was aware, right? What if they're right. not? 
right? What if this is, you know, a, a, I don't know, I'm in Minnesota, so let's just use Minnesota. What if this is a Minnesota employee who goes, you know, who has a, a, a sick parent that they need to go care for in a different state and they can perform their duties remotely and they don't tell their employer that they're not in Minnesota anymore, right? So what's the burden on the employer to investigate, yeah. right? Like how, how, how much do they have to, how hard do they have to work to discover that information from, you know, from the perspective of the, of the withholding rules? I have no idea what the answer is. I think that's, that's, I'm not even sure there is an answer. Yeah. And that's one of the, um, one of the reasons I like to work with our employment lawyers, because we talk a lot about, okay, how are we going to like document this information and what kind of policies should the company have in place? So like, with the California employee, we put a memo in in his personnel file that we had him sign that says, okay, this is how we're doing withholding for you. Like you are aware, you've talked to your tax advisor. Um, we are asking you to let us know if something changes. You know, another thing I've talked to companies about is have a list of like approved states, you know? And so if, if you are going to have people wandering, okay, you can wander to like XYZ state, but not New York, for example. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think it's about like having policies in place and having people um, aware that those policies exist. It's a really interesting dichotomy actually that's happening right now that I think you're kind of alluding to, you know, with, with, the, with the pandemic, we saw a pretty... Uh, palpable shift to remote work, right? And and uh, uh, hiring, um, what's the word? Um, when you, when you don't care where you're hiring, agnostic. Thank you. Yes, hire being agnostic about your hiring, right? So so the pandemic seemed to have kind of opened the playing field, but then you have these uh, these established larger employers who maybe they did and maybe they didn't shift their policies during the pandemic, but then they contracted again, right? And they're and now they're back to do where, you know, we have we have a list of states in in in, in a file in our desk drawer that says, you know, these are our green states, these are our yellow states, and these are our red states. And, you know, and we absolutely will not hire anybody in those red states. So they're kind of kind of shifting back um, because of these 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 tax policies, these tax rules and the difficulty of compliance. Yeah. Are you seeing that as well? Um, that's a good question. I I don't know. I, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it personally. It sounds like I should check in with some of our, of our employment folks and see if they've seen it. Um, <laughs> because, you know, obviously companies have concerns other than just tax issues. Um, yeah. It'd be nice if they thought of us first. I know. Whatever. I feel like they think of us last. <laughs> One, what we run into as well is, well, if, you know, someone's going to go temporarily hang out in Alabama, so we're going to do our withholding correctly, we're going to get a license, do all that nonsense. It's like, well, do we really need to to collect un, like unemployment? Like this person is never going to claim or file for unemployment in Alabama. They're a Minnesota resident mm-hmm. and they're just going to help out with their, you know, with their grand, you know, their parents, whatever, for a couple months. But yeah, they're going to go back to Minnesota at the end of the day. So do you have to have an, an unemployment license 
Because once you get these things, they're kind of a pain in the ass to unget them, right? Because then you've yeah. got, you know, income tax issues. You've got, you know, the ongoing compliance. You've got third-party kind of payroll providers that won't close licenses and they won't always file those zero returns when there's nothing happening. And so then you have this slew of kind of trailing compliance mm. that is it easier to just be non-compliant in the first place and take your chances? I don't know. It's just one of those those difficulties when it comes to, yeah, that you know ability to get on an airplane and go wherever you want because no one's showing up anywhere. Right. And I don't know how um, the unemployment tax side of things works. Um, is that also, is that similar to withholding where you have to do it in every state or is that um, you kind of pick a state and, and do it there? The rules, I think, are kind of, you know, like with anything else in state, um, it's it's all over the place. But uh, I don't think it tracks as neatly as you would like it to. I think in, in, in certain cases, it kind of defaults to the domicile. So uh, it's it's a little more difficult to to figure that out, uh, practically speaking. There, there's a decoupling that we tend to see uh, with UI and, and with Holden. Yeah. Speaking of domicile, um, can we talk about domicile? Sure. <laughs> yeah. I saw the opening and I went for it. Let's do it. Transition. Um, so just, you know, to, to kind of get another topic in there in terms of, you know, other things that I have been seeing a lot. And I think, again, a lot of people deal with this is, is residency audits and residency issues. Um, and I wanted to particularly like talk about a particular case that, that we have right now, because I think that a lot of practitioners, when they are dealing with residency audit, it's almost always in the circumstance where an individual is trying to relocate from, from a high tax state to a lower tax state and the high tax state doesn't want to let go. And so, so I have the opposite case, which I think you almost never ever see where um, it is a uh, New Hampshire residency audit of a Connecticut domiciliary. Which is weird, right? Because New Hampshire doesn't have an individual yeah. income tax, but they do at least until 2024. They have an interest in dividends tax on on New Hampshire residents only. So no broad-based individual income tax, but there is an interest in dividends tax. So hold on, Re repeat the facts again, that New Hampshire is the... The non-resident so state, or New the New Hampshire has state? asserted that these two taxpayers have established New Hampshire residency for purposes of interest and dividends tax. And okay. so, so okay, so this it's like it's a really really wild case um, because yeah, sounds so, so it's it's two individuals. They live in Connecticut. They have a vacation house in New Hampshire. Very very common fact pattern. Um, and they, this one year, this involves one year, they spent less than 80 days at their New Hampshire summer house. So less than 80 days is about the duration of a New Hampshire summer. Um, and, the, and based on that, New Hampshire has asserted that they were New Hampshire residents. So in this audit, 
the state has taken the position that for the first half of the year, the these folks were Connecticut residents, not residents of New Hampshire. Then for the next like six or so months, they were New Hampshire residents. And then in the immediately following year, they were Connecticut residents again. <laughs> and so... Yeah, I think I think like everyone's kind of making a face because you know if you know anything about like just the basic common law domicile principles is that you have to have some intent to abandon your previous domicile to establish a new domicile. So I think it's really hard to take the position that okay, you're you're Connecticut before and after, and then New Hampshire in the middle, and but you intended to abandon your domicile for just those six. Well, what's interesting, and I'm not an expert in this. I, I don't, I, I don't do personal residence yeah. or anything like that. But, but you know, um, but I've stayed in a holiday in Express <laughs> once. So, um, so uh, you can have uh, dual domicile in quotes via the statutory residency rules, right? So you can become a statutory resident of a different state, but uh, the states that. I've heard about New York is the one that comes off the top of my head. I think Minnesota has a similar rule as well. Um, it's usually a, like a 183-day test with some other requirement, like a permanent place of abode and something along those lines. So does New Hampshire even have the, that language? It doesn't. So there's no... So yeah, what you're talking about is like there's two paths to being treated as a resident. One is common law domicile and two is statutory residency. Yeah. So New Hampshire does not have a statutory residency. It's really like common law domicile principles. And they have um, a statute actually that defines what a residence is. And it, it goes something along the lines of it's your primary place of physical presence to the exclusion of all others. And you have to show like there has to be a to the exclusion of all other places in order to establish a residency. So, so in this case, um, I think the the thing that kind of blows my mind is you know okay so why why did New Hampshire take this position? Yeah, it seems kind of like a loser based on what we're. Yeah, hearing. I mean we, we do think <laughs> it's a loser, but. <laughs> Um, for we are in, in litigation, but the taxpayers, like, this is something that comes up to, with like anyone who advises, I think, on residency. The taxpayers are thinking about, okay, maybe we will retire in New Hampshire. And their tax advisors said, all right, here are, the, here are the first things you do to establish domicile in a place. You do these ministerial steps. So they registered to vote, they got driver's licenses, they paid estimated interest and dividend taxes. They registered um, the husband's business to do business in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. So they, they, that's it. That's all they did. And then, you know, come fall, they realized, hey, this isn't going to work. And then they undid all of those steps, except for they... Mm-hmm. So there were, there were some steps taking kind of in that direction. Yeah, so they, so they took those steps. But I think like... Whenever you advise somebody on changing their domicile, you say, these are the first steps, but those aren't going to get you there. They're not going to get, they're never going right. to get you out of a state. You know, you have to do more. You have to like move your doctors. You have to move your church. You yeah. have to move your community activities. You should like be, serve on boards. You should make some friends. You know, you should point to all these things that show community ties 
in the new place. And, and they just had none of that. They, they really did nothing at all to change their relationship in Connecticut. Like they're paying Connecticut resident tax returns. Um, they're like working yeah. full time from Connecticut. So, so there's really no steps taken on the Connecticut side to, to sever that tie. And I, I don't really think it's like going out on a limb to say that Connecticut would agree that like for the six month period, you guys were no longer Connecticut domiciliaries. That's a very interesting it case. Is. And there's, sure. there's one more twist, if you will indulge me. Um, you know, Alex, you were kind of surprised that um, New Hampshire has a tax, uh, an income tax on individuals. And so, so this interest in dividends tax, it's really the only individual income tax in the country that doesn't allow for a credit to residents for taxes paid to other states. And I, I would assume the reason being that it's only a tax on interest and dividend income and the state of residence gets to tax income from intangibles, that whole mobilia doctrine. So here we have like the income at issue is primarily dividends, but it's, it's related to the taxpayer's business that is conducted in, in Connecticut. And so, so that's one fact. And then like the other fact is that in the administrative hearing, the department had taken this position that the New Hampshire residency regulation um, has, has this list of things that you can do to show that you're a New Hampshire resident. And the department took the position that that list is disjunctive, meaning that you can be treated as a New Hampshire resident if you have a house in New Hampshire. You can be treated as a New Hampshire resident if you work in New Hampshire. You can be treated as a New Hampshire resident if you have family living with you in New Hampshire. Like any one of those is enough. So if you ha you're in a situation where you have this super low bar to clear to be treated a New Hampshire resident under this department position, and you don't have a resident tax credit, which you know, to me, it does not seem entirely constitutional. It's like obviously going to result in a lot of double taxation. And so, so we have, we actually filed a motion for summary judgment on that basis, asserting that the position violated the dormant commerce clause and the internal consistency test under win, which seems like very obvious, you know, if, if you are, you know, commuting from Massachusetts to New Hampshire and suddenly you're treated as a New Hampshire resident because you're working there and subject to interest and dividends tax, like you're going to have double taxation all over the place. You don't you don't hear about New Hampshire showing teeth too often. So I, I'm kind of <laughs> I'm getting excited about this. <laughs> yeah. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended, nor should it be relied upon as legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Should consult with a competent professional to discuss specifics of your situation and the applicability of the information presented.